Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, when I was in seminary, of course, one thing we studied quite often was uh, preaching, how to preach. And as you read books about preaching, sometimes you, you come across a saying uh, that goes like this, uh, preaching is meant to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Now, you might wonder, well, what does that mean? Uh, preaching is supposed to uh, afflict people? Uh, please no. Well, what does that mean? It means, it means for those who are comfortable just living in their sin, preaching is meant to wake them up to their need uh, to repent uh, of that sin. But on the other hand, there are those who are very troubled by their sin. They know it, and they're sorry for it. Uh, the preaching of the gospel is meant to comfort them, that their sins are forgiven. You know, it's something that we see in the Lord's, Lord Jesus preaching in the Gospels. This is also what he did. Uh, he spoke strong words against people like the Pharisees who comfortably lived in their sins. And sometimes his words, they cut deep. You can see that also in our text. Uh, maybe you felt that as we read the, the words of these texts. But on the other hand, Jesus also spoke tenderly to those who knew their sin and, and humbled themselves before God. I just think of the sinful woman in Luke 7. Uh, she knew she was a sinner, and in fact, everyone around her knew it as well. But she came up to the Lord Jesus in humility, and she wet Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. Christ comforted her by assuring her, "'Your sins are forgiven.'" go in peace. Of course, again, we see some of these things in our text as well. You know, at the bare face of things as you read this text, you know, the emphasis certainly is on waking us up to the danger of temptation and sin. But as we dig deeply into this text, we also see the comfort of the gospel coming through also. So as I preach to you God's word, I'll do so under the following theme, uh, the Lord Jesus teaches us about temptation, forgiveness, and faith. And we'll see uh, three main things. First of all, he teaches us to make sure we are not a source of temptation, uh, temptation to others. The second, he teaches us to forgive others as God forgives us. And finally, he teaches us to trust God to enable us to do what, what seems impossible. So in our text, the Lord Jesus, he begins by teaching us about temptation, warning us about temptation. He says, temptations to sin are, are sure to come in this world, but woe to the one through whom they come. So temptations are sure to come. The things that uh, lead other people to sin, the things that cause others to, to fall to their own spiritual hurt, uh, things that attract people off the, the right path onto the highway of sin. Now, the Greek word here for temptation can refer to an animal trap or a snare. Uh, think about that image. Right? How do you catch an animal? Well, often people will they'll set a trap or a snare. If one day you discover you have a mouse living in your house, well, out come the traps. I know this because this happened to us a few weeks ago. 
Uh, my brother-in-law was sleeping downstairs. He heard some scratching in the walls. We have a mouse. Out came the traps. And what do you do? You bait the trap with some cheese or uh, some peanut butter, and you wait. And the mouse smells the bait, and he comes looking for what smells so good. And sooner or later, the mouse cannot resist a taste. Then before he knows it, schmapo, your mouse is toast. I know this because that's what happened to our mouse. Now, I speak that in jest, but of course, the image Jesus uses is the topic he's speaking about is very serious. He's basically, this is how it works with temptation. He says temptations are sure to come in this world. Things that attract people to something that's damaging and and deadly. It's a snare, a, a trap for them. Things that lead others, attract them to harm themselves with sin. And we see that sad reality in this world all the time. Now, go through God's commandments. We read from the Ten Commandments this morning. You go through those commandments, and you can see corresponding temptations in the world uh, to to break those commandments. Uh, The love of money is promoted nearly everywhere. Uh, People get caught up in gambling, stealing, you name it. Pornography, sexual sin, fill the internet. Temptation is, is right there. And sometimes also, maybe you've come across that before, also come across some, somebody who once professed to be a Christian, but now uh, they do not, and they, they promote their own deconversion story out to, to everyone on the internet, right? And they encourage others to, to do the same, to walk away from the Christian faith. It's, it's really quite shocking. And Christ says these temptations to sin, they are sure to come, in this world? And why is that? Well, first of all, of course, there's the devil roaming this earth, and his main mission is to tempt people, to tempt us towards sin and unbelief. And then, of course, there's our own sinful hearts, our own sinful nature. By nature, we're attracted to sin, and there's always something in our hearts that, that wants to sin and, and even lead others to sin. And sadly, we have to confess that Christians, we too, <clears throat> we're not immune to doing this either. Perhaps we promote hatred towards someone by gossip or slander. You know, maybe we encourage someone to bully a person we don't like. Maybe we tempt someone to lie in order to to help ourselves cover something up we don't want exposed. Please lie for me. Maybe we encourage rebellion against teachers. It's not out of the picture in Christian schools. Uh, We might even lead someone into sexual sin. The reality is our hearts are capable of these things. And listen to... Uh, Christ's warning in our text also. He says, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Now, we don't use that term woe very much in our 
everyday speech, at least I don't think so. Uh, but you see it throughout the Bible. It's a pronouncement of, of disaster on someone, basically, for their sin. Jesus is saying how terrible it will be for the person through whom temptations come. And if there's any doubt about this, listen to how Jesus describes this. He says, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So these are, of course, these are strong words from our Lord Jesus. Quite a vivid image he speaks here. Uh, a millstone was a round, heavy stone. They used it for grinding grain. If one of those is strapped to your neck and you're thrown into the ocean, and there's only one place you're going, straight down into the deep darkness. So Christ is saying drowning in this way is to be preferred to the judgment coming on someone who causes one of these little ones to sin. And who are these little ones that Jesus refers to? Well, can refer to people who are just young in age, uh, can refer to new believers if people steer them off the right path, refer to anyone who's vulnerable to be led astray by sin. And so it's no wonder that after giving this vivid image, the Lord Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. Be careful that you don't cause others to sin. Make sure you're not the bait that attracts someone to the deadly trap of sin. Now, analyze your words, your actions, so that you don't lead people down the wrong path. I'll just give you one example that perhaps you've come across before, just something to think about. Think of an adult who reminisces about when he was younger, perhaps in his teen years, and he recounts or she recounts how he engaged in sinful activity. But instead of talking about it with sorrow, he reminisces about it in a joking manner. And as he does does so, there are other youths around to listen. And as they listen, they get the impression that it's normal for people their age to, to live in sin. And they start to believe, I have a free pass to sin right now as long as I change later in life. But remember Christ's words in our text. Make sure you're not a source of temptation leading one of these little ones to sin. A woe to the person through whom temptation comes. And what are some ways we can guard ourselves against tempting others? <clears throat> well, of course, the, the first thing we can do is make sure we walk on the right path ourselves. Well, if we're walking according to how God wants us to, then we won't be a source of temptation to others. You know, ask God to sanctify your entire life. You know, pray to Him, Father, cleanse me from evil desires, cleanse my mind from wicked thoughts, cleanse my heart, cleanse my will, my tongue, all my actions. Ask God to sanctify your entire life, and the more you do this, the less you'll be a source of temptation to other people. 
And the second thing is to aim to grow in love. This is not just about avoiding certain behaviors. Instead, we are to seek the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Build them up. Encourage each other towards good deeds. Encourage each other towards righteousness. As 1 John 2 verse 10 says, Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. The same word Jesus uses in our text. That brings us to our second point. So at the beginning of verse 3, Christ says, you know, pay attention to yourselves. And this uh, most likely refers to what he just warned about, making sure you're not a, a source of temptation. But it also could to refer to what, what comes next in our text. Uh, the Lord Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. In other, you know, if he sins against you, rebuke him. In other words, don't turn a blind eye towards sin. You know, if your brother sins, then you need to uh, speak to that person. Perhaps the practice of rebuking has gone away of the dinosaur. Uh, it's not easy to rebuke someone. It certainly isn't. Why does the Lord Jesus call us to do it? Well, he calls us to do it so that we together might grow in holiness. We might not live in sin. And there's a right way and a wrong way to do a rebuke. First, it needs to be clear and obvious that someone has sinned against you. No going on gut feelings no going on hearsay, clear and obvious. Second, you need to make sure you're not acting hypocritically. As Christ says elsewhere, make sure you take the plank out of your own eye. Third, a rebuke must not be done like a bull in a china shop. More harm than good comes from that. It must be done in love. While it can be spoken firmly, must not, it must not be spoken in anger. If you, are in, if you are angry, you're not in the proper frame of mind to rebuke someone. As James 1 verse 19 says, Let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And yet, despite those things, Christ calls us to do it at times. Right? There is a time to tell someone that what he or she is doing is wrong, it is sin, and that he or she needs to stop doing it. And a well-spoken rebuke is meant to wake someone up to their sin. We can be blind to our own sin. And it's meant to put a stamp on someone's conscience so that they don't keep doing the same sin again and again. That's the goal of a rebuke. The goal is never to break a relationship. It's meant to restore a relationship that's been damaged by sin. You see, a rebuke is a means to an end. As Jesus says, if he repents, forgive him. That's what we're after. The sinner recognizes the presence of sin and admits the wrong. The one who has been sinned against is to forgive. 
Now, a question often arises with these passages on forgiveness. Uh, Does a person need to be sorry before forgiveness is extended? Under this, we can say, well, in one sense, uh, no. Uh, Think of Christ. Christ forgave those who crucified him before they repented. He said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And even if someone does not repent, we must never hate anyone. At all times, we display a gracious and forgiving attitude. And yet, we can't ignore what the Lord Jesus teaches us here. If he repents, forgive him. See, the Lord doesn't want us to brush over the fact that a wrong has been committed. Sin should be confronted in a loving way. And Christ, why he says this, is he wants true reconciliation. And that can only fully occur when there is repentance. But when repentance happens, then we need to make sure that full forgiveness is extended. Look at how high the bar is set by, by Jesus. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Seven times, of course, being the number of fullness. So, essentially, Jesus is saying every time. Now, why this high standard of forgiveness? Why does he uh, present us with this high standard of forgiveness? Well, it's because this is the standard God holds for himself. And how good that is. Surely we all sin against Him every day. And sometimes the same sin multiple times in the same day. And yet, we can always come to Him in true humility, seeking His forgiveness. We can trust, be assured that it will be given by God with no exceptions. And think of the magnitude of God's forgiveness. You know, to help us see this, think about what Christ said earlier in this text. I said, Woe to the one through whom temptations come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. You know, those are strong words. But in some sense, you probably apply to us all. I'm sure we have all been a source of temptation to others before in our lives. And maybe as we looked at those words from Christ in our first point, they really hurt you or hit you and felt a burden placed on you as you think of some of your past sins as well. You know, I think back to a time when you were a cause of temptation for others, led them to sin and Maybe it was crushing to hear the Lord Jesus say those words. Does Christ want this for me? Drowned in the sea? But here is where we must remember the great forgiveness of God. Though sin offends Him greatly, He gives free and full forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord, through His perfect sacrifice on the cross. Full forgiveness. You know, see, if God were not forgiving in this way, 
and no one could be saved. We couldn't be saved. That's certainly true of, of all people. Think of, think of the Apostle Peter. In, in Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples he would soon need to suffer and die in Jerusalem. Peter then took the Lord Jesus aside and said to him, No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Christ told him, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. The same word used for a source of temptation in our text. Peter was a source of temptation to our Lord Jesus Christ in that moment. And yet God forgave Peter through Christ fully, completely. And this is what he does also for us in Jesus Christ, to those who look to Christ in faith for the forgiveness of their sins. You are assured of God's promise in Micah 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression from the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It's what God has done for you in Christ. You know, though we deserve to be tossed into the sea with that millstone around our necks, God has graciously done that to our sins instead. As you imagine again that large, heavy rock thrown down into the ocean depths, now picture it with your sin strapped to it, heading down to the darkness instead of you. Never to see that sin again. That's what God has done for us in Christ. And that's the forgiveness God has graciously granted us. And in that light, we forgive those who sin against us. Of course, that doesn't always make it easy, right? Sin hurts. When you're sinned against, it hurts. If someone hurts you, even if you forgive them, it doesn't mean that the pain has gone away. We shouldn't confuse forgiveness with the removal of all feelings of hurt. No, and and if you still experience feelings of hurt, it doesn't mean you haven't forgiven someone. Uh, We shouldn't confuse forgiveness, again, with removal of all feelings of hurt. Neither does someone who's been, say, abused need to put themselves in harm's way. They shouldn't even do that. But yet, Christ says, forgive as God forgave us. Your brother sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You know, there was a pastor in the ancient church who gave a nice illustration in this regard. His name was Cyril of Alexandria. And he compared uh, extending forgiveness to that of the work of a doctor. He said, we should imitate those whose business it is to heal our bodily diseases and who do not care for a sick person only once or twice, but just as often as he happens to become ill. Right? The doctor may have to treat the same injury-prone person multiple times, but he does it because the patient needs healing. And so it is with forgiveness. This is the forgiveness God has granted us 
we forgive others as well. Brings us to our last point. Now, in response to Jesus' teaching on forgiveness, the disciples blurt out, increase our faith. Like, clearly they saw the, the difficulty of Jesus' teaching here. Maybe they think of when they were sinned against. And they felt they just didn't have this type of forgiveness within them. And so they said, again, increase our faith. But listen to the response of Christ. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, as far as I am aware, I've never seen a mulberry tree before. Apparently, there's only a small pocket in Canada where they grow in, uh, in just some parts of southern Ontario, extreme southern Ontario. And when I heard and when I read the Lord Jesus talk about a mulberry tree, I always had in mind some scraggly-looking tree or even just a bush. Perhaps the nursery rhyme all around the mulberry bush was influencing my thoughts. But as I was preparing this sermon, I, I did some research on mulberry trees, and these are actually very big trees. Uh, not only can their branches spread far and wide, uh, providing a great uh, area of shade, uh, they can live a long time, and they're, they have a vast root system that would be incredibly difficult to, to uproot. And perhaps Jesus and his disciples, as they were walking along the path, the Lord Jesus was teaching them about this, and the disciples said, you know, increase our faith, and then the Lord Jesus points to a mulberry tree as a great illustration as they're walking along the way. If you had faith as small as a mustard seed, a tiny seed, you could say to, to that mulberry tree right there, be uprooted, planted in the sea, it would obey you. Well, that's, that's another shocking statement from the Lord. Imagine that scene. One day you walk by, you know, maybe a huge oak tree, one of the trees over here, and you say to it, oak tree, pull yourself up by the roots, go fly into the ocean, go plant yourself there. Imagine then that the, the oak tree actually obeyed you. you know, children, imagine that. Imagine if you could do that, children. Say to a tree, a big tree, go into the ocean and it, and it listen to you. Well, that would be quite something. You know, I remember doing this sort of thing as a child. Also in the Gospels, Christ talks about having faith to move mountains into the sea. And with the mountains close by in BC, I sometimes tried this. Concentrate really hard, say to a mountain, uh, one mountain called Golden Ears, uh, go into the sea. Of course, I was disappointed when it didn't happen. That's not really what Christ is getting at. He's not saying that faith will give us magical, magical powers to do all kinds of stunts, to rearrange creation. Faith is always faith in God's promises. Faith is also a trust that God will enable us to do what he calls us to do, even if it seems impossible. Reminds me of the prayer of Augustine in his confessions. He prayed to God, give what you command and command whatever you will. In other words, if you command us to do something, O Lord, give us the strength to carry it out. And yes, if God did command us that we had to uproot a mulberry tree and toss it in the ocean, we can be sure we could do it through Him. And that's the point Jesus is making. 
We don't need more faith in the sense that faith is some kind of power that if, if your faith tank is filled, the more power you'll have. No, we just need faith, and faith as, has an object. It's faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in God's Word. And Christ calls us here in God's Word to forgive our brothers and sisters seven times, even in one day. He sins against you seven times, and seven times says he repents, forgive him. And yes, it's impossible on our own. Impossible on our own. But it's not possible for God, for the God of forgiveness, who has forgiven our sins, to work that in our hearts. Look at how God has forgiven us and continues to forgive us, well, that forgiving God lives in you by the Holy Spirit. And it's when one man put it so well, it's not so much great faith in God that is required to do these things, rather it's faith in a great God. And that is the case. And so by His power, not our own, we can do these things. Amen.